Good morning. I need to take a drink of water. I was blasting my pipes with that last song. I hope that's my water. A <clears throat> um, couple of things, is it, last week? You know, last Sunday, um, it occurred to me, I think God pointed out to me, that we were having church in three places. Vineyard Christian Church was having church, <clears throat> excuse me, here in Pataskala. We were having church with the birds, not the birds, but the, the birds. Do you hear all the beautiful birds there and the volcano in the background in El Salvador? And we were having church in New Lexington in Perry County. So that was awesome. We had a great service down there in New Lex, and uh, God was there, and it was so neat to have really four churches together. It was us, the Lancaster Vineyard, the Zanesville Vineyard, and then the new vineyard that's going to be birthed down in New Lexington. So it was really cool that God is using this church, and I wanted you to uh, keep that plant in your prayers. As we go forward, we're going to have a service every month, and it'd be great if you could go down in future times. There's sweet people down there. It's a beautiful location down in the hills, and uh, they need to have the presence of God in a, uh, an evangelical, vineyard-esque uh, worship service. So uh, it was good. Hey, I want to uh, just tell you real quick that um, when when I was um, Jennifer and I were living in Germany for a time, there's a there's a little um, town called Rotenburg ob der Tauber, and uh, it's on the Romantic Road. It's in uh, it's towards the uh, sort of the center part of Germany. But they have a museum of torture there. And actually, I've seen one now. I've seen one in London. They're all the rage. I've seen one in Italy. But um, this little plastic thing has fallen off my headset. And so right now, there's a metal piece digging itself into my ear. So this is going to be in the Museum of Torture in a way. I'm not going to be able to turn my neck too much. So uh, if you see any blood spurting, do not be alarmed. All right, so we're going to continue our series today, as Ben mentioned, in the names of God. But first I wanted to introduce you to someone. His name is, was, is Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a man in need of a deliverer. You may have read the book or seen the movie. It came out last year called Unbroken, the World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. And I heartily endorse the movie. I don't know what it's rated, but I reckon it's not that too... Uh, it's probably family-friendly. Uh, it was a great movie, good book to read. So I encourage you to see it if you haven't. He was born in 1921 to a newly minted American family that had come across on a boat from Verona, Italy. They moved to Torrens, California where the father took a job with the, with the railroad. They didn't speak a lick of English. And so they had a tough time kind of pulling the family together, getting the job started, and getting the kids in school. Louis, in particular, had a real rough go as a youngster and got into a lot of fights uh, just to defend himself and getting picked on because he couldn't speak English initially. But he became a tough, you know, a tough young lad, and then he started running. And uh, his running kept going better and better, and it ultimately took him 
to the 1936 Olympics held in Munich, Germany. Sorry, Berlin, Germany. Now, this is the famous uh, Olympics, you might recall, 1936. This was called the Nazi Olympics because it was held in Berlin and, and uh, Hitler was making a big deal about the master race and everything. And the awesome part of it, we had a, a young black man named Jesse Owens who won four gold medals and it really shook up and ticked off Mr. Hitler. So that's a famous uh, Olympics and uh, Louis Zamperini was there running. Uh, after the Olympics, 1936, remember, we were going into a war period. He became an airman in the U.S. Army Air Corps and a bombardier in a B-24 uh, plane serving in the South Pacific. In 1943, as they were doing a, uh, a run out in the, uh, across the ocean, his plane had a ditch into the water because of a mechanical problem 800 miles away from Hawaii. There were only three survivors of the crash when, it, when the plane went into the water, one of whom later died at sea. But for 47 days, Zamperini and his pilot stayed alive at sea by capturing rainwater and, oddly enough, just reaching down and pulling up fish. They, they cut a couple of birds that landed on their raft, and they survived. But all the while, they were being harassed by sharks who were also looking for food. And you would say this man was in need of a deliverer. The raft drifted all the way over to the Marshall Islands where he was captured by the Japanese. And he was thrown into a notorious concentration camp, I'll call it, prisoner of war camp, Nofuna. He was brutally beaten every day and tortured for more than two years by his Japanese captors. The treatment of, the, of this camp was so bad that after the war, General MacArthur put the, the commander of that camp on a list of the top 40 war criminals that they were looking for. He was never found. Actually, he was found, but he was never captured. Louis, or Louis was liberated and he got married. Everything's great. You're saved. You're a war hero. You're back in California. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Everything wasn't rosy. Louis suffered from what we now call post-traumatic stress. He couldn't sleep because he always had nightmares of wanting to kill his captors. He started drinking, and his drinking got worse, and his life just spiraled out of control. His marriage was failing. He couldn't keep a job. And this tormented soul was clearly in need of help. He needed to be delivered from his demons. He once again needed to be rescued. His wife, at the end of her rope, attended a Billy Graham um, crusade in Los Angeles and was introduced to Jesus, and she got saved. In 1949, she went and grabbed her husband's arm and dragged him to another Billy Graham crusade where he was introduced to Jesus. And Louis got saved, but he didn't just get saved. He stopped drinking, he patched up his marriage, he became a model citizen and started working for the veterans of America and others to tell them more about Jesus. I believe the most remarkable part of his life 
was that Zamperini took it upon himself to visit many of his prison guards who had treated him so heinously for two years, beating him and torturing him. This included 1950 when he went to visit Sagano, sorry, Sagamo prison in Tokyo where many of the war criminals were his um, I guess you could call them uh, his guards. He asked uh, a big crowd of people, uh, the Japanese, if they would step forward if they recognized him. Now, I was always taught in the army, never step forward, never volunteer, but a number of them did, right? These were men who had been caught and were at the, at the really, they needed a deliverer. But what he did was amazing. Zemperini expressed his forgiveness to them. Later, he said that uh, a number of these Japanese in, uh, interned uh, folks became Christians in response. His life was difficult. There were many stages of his life when he was at the bottom. He had unbelievable stressors on his life. And when his life was completely falling apart, he was introduced to Jesus, who delivered him from all the pain in his life. He became a friend of God who delivered him from sin and welcomed him into heaven. So today we're going to study in the Psalms, maybe a little bit different than I uh, typically teach. We're going to go through the Psalm verse by verse to dissect it, as it were, to see what God would have us learn. Typically when I teach, uh, we, we grab a portion of Scripture and we look at themes and, and um, exposit on its merit. Today we're going to go into Psalm 144, a portion of scripture that was written originally as a song and sung to the glory of God. Some of the songs in Psalms are full of sorrow and despair. Some are full of joy and praise. The Psalms were written particularly well to be used in this fashion of Bible study, going point by point, verse by verse, through scripture to pull out of the Bible what God would have us learn. So today we're going to land in Psalm 144. Now this is a perfect number. Who's a math geek out there? 144. It's a perfect number. Some some commenters say 12 is the perfect number in Scripture. 12 apostles, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation has 12 gates and 12 angels. 144,000 receiving salvation in the Great Tribulation. It's a perfect number. 12 squared is 144. So another thing occurs to me while we're going through this scripture is that as a leader of this church, I get introduced to a lot of people. And every so often I get introduced to folks who say, you know, they're honest enough to say, I just don't understand the Bible. I can't read it. It just doesn't sink in. Well, today I hope that you'll see how easy it is to read scripture and discern God's meanings. And I hope that if you're one of those persons who finds the Bible hard to understand and read, you'll come to see how God's word was written, not for Sunday service, but it was written for you. And you will grow in your hunger for the word that you will be delivered by God to come to read, trust, and ultimately love the word of God. So here's what I recommend. First, turn to uh, Psalm 144. And if you have one of these cool Bibles that have this little cord thing, that's a, this is a great, great little invention. 
Uh, keep your place there because we have some other scriptures we're going to run into. Um, if you don't have the, uh, this little C cord into the seam of your Bible, or if you're one of the younger people who use electronic Bibles, not that I'm against that, but uh, you know, if you don't have one of these things in your Bible or you're using a church Bible, there are Bibles in the back that uh, you can use. Um, just put some paper in there to keep your place or use your neighbor's finger to keep track of where we are. Barring all that, I think we have the, uh, after having all said all that, we have the, uh, the words on the screen behind me. So let's pray first before we get to the word. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord, that you wrote for us. You're a personal God, Lord. You want to be our friend. And Lord, we need to learn what you have in scriptures for us. Father, I pray a blessing on today's Um, reading, and I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would open all of our eyes, Lord, even those who are hardened to your word or confused by your word, Lord, that that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes, Lord Jesus. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've just started this series on the names of God. We've learned so far that the Christian God has many names in Scripture, a simple study that I did say that there's almost a hundred different names that the early believers used for God to describe him, to call out to him. So why do you think there's so many names? Why do you think that? I would answer that the God of the Bible is indescribable. He's varied and he's full of wonders. God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's the creator of all we see. He always was, he always will be, a God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Judge, our Friend, our King. He is hard to describe, but he is not unknowable. God gives us his names to use to call out to him because he wants us to get to know him, to have a personal relationship with him. It's amazing to me that God would want to have a personal relationship with me. After we, as mankind, turn our backs on him and seek to live our lives without him. So yes, God does have names found in scripture. God is a personal God because he has a personality. And as much as we hear from the atheists that there is no God, the the Bible says that even these hard-hearted people at the end of the day, or sadly at the end of their lives, when it's too late, will admit that there is a God of of the universe. So we have studied thus far the names of God, just how to describe him. The names, as Ben said, of God are sacred. We were introduced in the series by defining Yahweh. Brian taught last week in the name Jehovah-Rohi. God is my shepherd. And this morning we will learn what the Bible has to say about Jehovah-Mephalti, God my deliverer. God is my deliverer, Jehovah-Mephalti. We will see in Psalm 144 how God delivers his people from harm and from despair. God wants to deliver us from harm and rescue us as he did, Mr. Zamperini, rescue us from trials. Yes, that is true. And we will still see the land of Israel thriving after so many onslaughts of evil against it. And I could ask, you know, I know many of your stories. I could ask this room, uh, whether God has delivered you from addictions, or don't raise your hand, addictions or health crises or serious relational conflict, 
or that God's providence has intervened for you when you are struggling financially. But you see, my friends, we know that God does not just provide his people an out from our enemies. He is not only the deliverer who rescues us, rescues us from our peril. In the Bible, God's word is described as being alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. God is more than the deliverer who saves us from physical harm. He wants to deliver us from hell, ultimately. God wants us to be delivered in our souls, that through him we would be saved or delivered from the consequences of our sin. Now, if I were to ask again, do you raise your hand if you've been delivered from sin unto salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus? I think we would have less people prompted to raise their hands. Saved from addiction, delivered from the fiery inferno, delivered from a terrible relationship, unshackled by sin, and delivered from hell. God the Deliverer, Jehovah Mephalti. So join with me in verse 1. Praise be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Many of the stories and histories we read about in the Bible have military foundation. Now why is that? Throughout the history of the ancient Israelites, and to be honest with you, the Israeli family, the land of Israel today, they have been engaged in warfare, and the people groups who surround them are seeking to do them harm. This is relevant in the Old Testament, as we see in the country of Israel being formed, and it is true in the New Testament, when all the books were written during the time of the Roman military, Roman occupation. I think another reason, and one more relevant for us today, is that God knew and knows that we, reading his written words some 2,000 years later, would find ourselves in a similar state of war. What? What's he talking about? Did God know that we would be in a, a struggle, a national struggle with evils of radical Islam? Is that what he's talking about? Is it that kind of warfare? Well, yes and no, but to put it bluntly... We are in a spiritual battle. Mankind, since the fall of man, since our forefathers chose to rebel against God, we have been witnesses of and participants in a spiritual battle, a battle that rages across all corners of the earth between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Does anyone doubt that? In this week, does anyone doubt the fact When we see videos of Planned Parenthood ripping apart, murdering babies, do you not see that this is a battle raging, a spiritual battle of of good and evil? I'm going to pause here to say that tomorrow the U.S. Senate is going to vote whether to continue funding with your money, Planned Parenthood, $500 million a year. This is a battle. This is evil right in front of us. And I must say, and this occurred to me between services, is that when I get in front of Jesus at my, when my time is up, he's going to look in my uh, book of life and say, well, what did you do about it, Andrew? What did you do about this murder that's happening in the U.S.? So it's happening. This spiritual battle is happening. There is today a battle raging around us and the impacts of sin that come from the devil's bombardment may not show huge holes in the earth, but this battle raging around us does leave holes and gaping wounds in the bodies and souls of all of mankind. We are at war. Mankind is at war. And even through this, though, David calls out praise 
to the personal name of God, the Lord our rock. In Hebrew, the word rock means, uh, is used to express strength. Verse 2, he is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. David calls him my loving God. It's a personal one-on-one relationship that David is singing about here. It's a personal relationship that God wants to have. God of the universe. This is the unfathomable part for me. Wants to have with us. Fortress and stronghold are metaphors for safety, for protection. And now we see the word deliverer. Jehovah Mephalti. What does that mean? Deliverer. Delivered from what? Well, we clearly see here that David is giving praise to God who is protecting his people from all who are challenging him. A God who is getting between him and his and the evil that was surrounding them, the sins of the world that is bombarding against the believers of God. Galatians 1 states that through God's strength and his greatness, he rescues us from the present evil age. The God who delivers them to safety, the God who provides a way of escape. This is the God we study in the Bible. This is the God who wants to be our protector. Verse 3, O Lord, what is man that you care for him? The son of man that you take care of him. The words of a humble King David who rightly acknowledges his position to God. I believe there's just too much use of the word deserve in our culture. I see ads on the TV or in the newspaper or on radio. You deserve this interest rate. You deserve to have the right. You deserve to have this kind of house in your life. Really? I deserve this? Really? After, after studying the Bible for many years and not taking too much time to introspect, it has seeped into my brain that I completely disagree with these ads. I deserve a better life. You know what I deserve? Do you know what Andrew Lang deserves? This guy standing in front of you, I can tell you, I serve my country, I pay my taxes, I love my wife, I would jump on a grenade for my kids, but I'm a sinner. And through my actions and through my thoughts, it's clear to me that I am a sinner. I consistently turn my back on God who created me and sustains me. So you know what I deserve? I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to have Jesus say to me, as he did in Matthew 7, get away from me, I never knew you. If I'm honest with myself and I truly look in the mirror, right into my eyes, that's what I deserve. I deserve to go to hell. And would have gone to hell, but for a gracious God. He's a personal friend of mine. It's hard to say. It's unbelievable to me. He calls me friend who didn't just laugh away my sins. He's a jealous God who didn't just say tut, tut, tut about my disobedience. But Jehovah Mephalti, who through his love sent his son to die on my behalf. You see, the penalty of my sin of rebellion against God has to be paid. I broke the law, and the penalty has to be paid. God, in his infinite mercy, sent his son to pay the penalty that I richly deserve. In the glorious action of Jesus' crucifixion, Jehovah Mephalti delivered me from a future in hell to a future with him in heaven. Think about that. Verse four, man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. This is a familiar theme in scripture. The book of James states that our lives are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. 
that we are but a wisp of time. And if you've ever walked in an old graveyard or walked down a street in, a, in an old city, you kind of get a sense of all the people who might have been in that place centuries before you. It's clear in the grand scheme of things, time is short. Choose today, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians, that today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, but today. Live for God today, and God, whose peace surpasses all understandings, will deliver you. Verse 5, part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Here, King David, one of the strongest and richest uh, nation states of the time, realizing that the one true king has the power to manipulate the heavens and the earth. But David, the warrior king, finds no man to help him. So he calls out to Jehovah Mephalti, the deliverer. David is calling out to God. Make the earth tremble, Lord. Let us feel the power of your name, God. The Bible is full of examples when the God of the universe has stepped into time to make his presence known to mankind. The parting of the Red Sea, the exodus of the Israelites, the manna sent from heaven to feed the Jews are just quick examples. But the best example where God stepped into time was in this little humble manger in Bethlehem. When the word was made flesh to dwell among us. The deliverer of mankind condescended to come down from heaven to become man. Because God knew we need a deliverer to save us from eternal condemnation. It says in 1 Thessalonians, it will be Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Verse 6, send forth lightning and scatter the enemies. Shoot your arrows to rout them. Once again, we see a military theme, evidence in David's writings. Deliver me from my enemies through your power, Jehovah Mephalti. Verse 7, reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners. The example here is like being drawn away in a, in a flood, being overtaken by a flood of despair and hopelessness as the devil attempts to drag us under. Deliver me, Lord. Save me from the calamity that is dragging me away. Rescue me, God, from hands, from the hands of foreigners. Deliver me from the devil's children, those who hate me because they first hated you. Verse 8, whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Warfare and opposition can come not just from fists and swords. Sticks and stones may break my bones, you've heard that. Anyone who's been on the receiving end of taunts and bullying and other verbal abuse know that it's... You may not bruise, but you certainly hurt. Lying mouths we see from Washington to Columbus, from Watkins Middle School to our places of work. Lord, deliver me from these people who malign me with their speech, whose hands should be shaking my hand in friendship, but rather balled up fists in deceit. Verse 9, I will sing a new song, O God, on the ten-stringed lyre. I will make music to you. Weary of the false, David will adore the truth. He wants to sing a new song to the God, Jehovah Mephalti, who delivers to the God who has protected his people. He wants to make a joyful noise. He wants to give thanks and praise to God who saved him. A new song. If anyone is in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, he becomes a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus Christ delivers us from the old Ways, providing us a new way of life. But he will free you 
from bondage. Because he frees you, doesn't give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. We are not to live the life, our former life, but we are to realize that we are, we, he has broken the sin in our lives and we are to live differently. Do you ever get into a funk? Do you ever get into a place where the enemy of your soul uh, sometimes pushes you? The Bible is giving you the answer to the pain you may be feeling. When you are curled up in that ball of self-pity and shame and despair, here's one way you can fight it. Pray to God for his deliverance. Break out some worship music. I remember one time a number of years ago, after I was laid off, I took a long bike ride with some headphones on and worship music playing. I was at a low point. I was hurt. I was questioning my abilities. I was scared about the future. I just wanted to get out of there. I distinctly remember I put on third day on my uh, headphones and listened to praise and worship songs that I probably rode. I could have won the Pelotonia race. I was riding so fast. And I remember that day clearly. Do you know why I remember that day? Because my deliverer saved me that day. He delivered me from the lies that were being told about me. He delivered me that day from the doubts and self-flagellation that the devil heaped upon me. God protected me that day and many days before that and after that wonderful morning from the lies and deceit of man. Verse 10, to the one, now that's capitalized because it's a personal pronoun, who gives victory to kings. In the King James Version, victory, sorry, victory is salvation. He gives salvation to kings who delivers his servant David from the deadly sword. David uses the present tense because in David's life and hopefully in our lives, God delivers us and he covers our past, our present, and our future. Verse 11, deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are in deceit. Okay, remember this is a song, so this is a refrain, this is a chorus, and sometimes it's good to remind ourselves in a refrain of God's goodness and and his delivering spirit. Verse 12, then our sons in their youth will be well-nurtured plants, and our daughters will be like pillars carved to to adorn a palace. Toward the end of this praise song, David is beginning to identify some of the benefits of God's providence and deliverance of us from the schemes of the enemy. The first blessing he shows is that our children, who we have nurtured and and, uh, we hope will grow in holiness and righteousness, he uses the metaphor for plants. So plants grow to the sun, S-U-N. Christian children, we pray, will grow to, toward the sun, S-O-N. We have the pleasure, me and a couple other guys in here, we teach the middle school in there. And it's great to have fun with the kids and, and, and tell them about uh, stories in the Bible, but what we're really wanting them, and we do this uh, individually as, as uh, adults, is we pray for them. We pray for their deliverance and that they would live a righteous and holy life and that the little pieces of seed we put into their lives now, when it's ready, when the time to make decisions come about in their growing adult life, they will make the right decisions. Verse 13, our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. Verse 14, our oxen will grow, will draw heavy loads. The 19th century preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said, 
when the fruits of the earth are plentiful, when we're blessed by, you know, if you're a farmer, blessed by uh, crops, or if you're a business person or anybody, you're blessed by uh, a paycheck. The fruits of our lips, Haddon sa- uh, Spurgeon says, the fruits of our lips should be joyful. In joyful worship and praise. Back to the text, there will be no breaching of the walls, no going into captivity, no cry of despair in our streets. Here again, we see the protective nature of Jehovah Mephalti, our deliverer. And lastly, verse 15, blessed are the people of whom this is true. That is to say, blessed are the people who have been delivered, who have been saved. Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So at the end, we see a grateful and humble king calling attention to the one who saves, to the one who delivers us from harm on this earth and delivers us ultimately from death. If you ask him, God is the deliverer. If we accept Jehovah Mephalti as our Savior and Lord, Jesus delivers us from harm today and from death tomorrow, if we allow him. So why doesn't the worship team come up? We'll end our uh, service, if you wouldn't mind standing. We'll do a couple of songs, but while they get ready up here...